0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are hugely advantaged on this Friday. This was not expected. Michael Pyle will join us now. Yes, he is chief economic advisor to the vice president, but far more, this is Mike Pyle, who took all the heritage of Dartmouth economics, think the trade of Douglas Irwin and the rest, even the modern Blanche Flower uh, macroeconomic babble, and, and brought it into a sterling record in Dartmouth economics, including winning the Rockefeller Award, hugely coveted, onto BlackRock, and now, again, with the vice president. Mike Pyle, thrilled on this day to have you with us. I'm going to go where my Michael McKee is. I'm going to go with Catherine Rand of The Washington Post is, which is there's got to be talk of price controls for this rampant inflation. Are you talking about price controls with the vice president? Are you talking about price controls with the White House? So, thanks for having me, Tom. I would say the,
1: the president and vice president Uh, have a game plan that we are executing around the short term uh, and the long term to uh, expand the productive potential of the economy. Uh, In the short term, uh, that means things like uh, unsnarling our supply chains. Uh, We've been taking uh, actions there around ports, Uh, around getting more commercial driver's licenses uh, out the door to get truckers on the road Uh, over the medium to long term. Obviously, we're very focused on uh, things like semiconductors and, and getting investments there to build our productive capacity. That's what we're focused on here, building that productive capacity out over the short, medium, and long run.
0: That can be the plans under control, but if there is a lack of control due to month after month of high inflation, again, a word that's out there, rampant inflation, I believe from the Financial Times, Mike Pyle, what this comes down to is, do price controls work? In your stunning academic career at Dartmouth, did you study that price controls can work?
1: So, again, I would say, you know, our job here is to use the tools that we have. We think that those tools go to uh, expanding the productive potential, the supply capacity of the economy uh, in the short term and the medium term. Uh, you know, if you look uh, down Constitution Avenue here, uh, the Federal Reserve, they have principal responsibility uh, for maintaining uh, full employment for stable prices. Uh, we are also you know, looking to give them the space and the independence they need uh, to take uh, that principal responsibility. Our job here is to use the tools we have. We think we're doing that around supply chains, around calling for and acting on uh, the investments to, to give this economy room to run, to give the supply capacity economy room to
2: run. That's what we're focused on. Mike, what do you say to people that say that you guys ran things too hot? Could talk about the Federal Reserve and the lack of response we had from the Fed. But the argument that you ran things too hot, that the package you passed when you took over the White House was too big for this economy. Yes, it was supply constrained, but you fueled demand. And here we are at 7.5 percent. Do you have an argument for that still that stands up?
1: So I say two things. I mean, one, let's take a step back. Uh, This is a historic recovery uh, that is ongoing. Uh, The fastest GDP growth in 40 years, uh, an unemployment rate uh, now down to 4%, uh, the fastest it's dropped on record, Uh, 6.6 million jobs created last year. That is a historic uh, recovery. Uh, When we look, obviously, uh, we're very focused, the president, vice president, very focused on uh, price pressures and the way they pinch Uh, working families. But we would observe that, you know, this is a global phenomenon. This is traceable to a global shock. uh, The pandemic. And we've seen uh, record inflation in the U.K. and Canada, uh, the highest inflation in Europe in in 20 some years. Uh, This is a global phenomenon. But we want to build on the successes that we've had around the recovery. uh, But also we're focused in a very laser like way with the tools that we have to bring price pressures under control. To
2: some degree, Mike, that is true. To a certain extent, some people would argue against it. President Lagarde herself has said this. She said this yesterday evening. The US economy is overheated. Our economy is far from being that. She thinks it's a very different economy in Europe compared to, say, the United States. And you rattle through those numbers, and we do that as well on this program. There's some great numbers out there. The ultimate problem you've got as an administration at the moment, as you know, is that the sentiment numbers don't echo it. People don't feel good. And in the polls, the administration is rolling over, including for the vice president. It's been a difficult time for her as well. Mike, is time on your side here going into the midterms? Do you think it is? Is the calendar on your side when you look at the inflation and the hope that it decelerates into year-end?
1: So I'm, I'm the economics guy, not the politics guys. I'll just go straight to the economics. You know, I think you heard from the president uh, yesterday in, in his statement after the CPI release, that's something we've been been saying for a while. When you look at uh, the vast majority of forecasters out there, whether it's uh, the Fed or, or the private sector, they do see uh, inflation decelerating meaningfully over the course of 2022. At the same time, we, like they, see the labor market remaining strong. Uh, so our expectation is, as we go through 2022, we're going to see uh, ongoing strength in the labor market. We're going to see inflation decelerate. I think you saw the glimmers of that uh, in the CPI print and uh, the jobs print last week, where we saw uh, wages go up by 0.7 uh, month on month. Uh, we saw inflation up 0.6. Obviously, that's a firm print, but it was indicative of real wage growth. We think that as we move through the year, that's going to improve as wages stay strong, but inflation comes down.
2: My palm- Oh, thank you. Mike, is good to catch up, buddy. Chief Economic Advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris. Let's get to the
0: perfect guest. Jim Zelter, Apollo Global Management. And, John, what's so great here out of his Duke Economics is the immense cred of actually running money, you know, it's a path from Smith Barney. John, that was a small startup firm a few years ago. On to Citigroup and
2: then on to Apollo. The co-president and credit CIO joins us right now. Hey, Jim, let's talk about the business and then let's get our teeth into markets too. The business, the inflows, fantastic for the quarter. Looking at credit strategies, accounting for 64% of that during the period. What's driving that, Jim?
3: Well, we're fortunate. We have an amazing platform, and it was a banner year in every aspect of our business. First of all, investor performance. We performed across the firm from credit to hybrid to PE. Uh, We deployed a tremendous amount of capital, um, and certainly from all those metrics, investors do well, and we provide solutions for a variety of businesses. So the business is is performing on all cylinders. 21 was a a banner year, as I use that term, in, in all the economic performance, and... You know, certainly, we've continued to expand our role uh, in the infrastructure of the economy. Uh, credit is the lifeblood of the of the economy. Um, we can talk about a variety of the extension. Last time I was out, we talked about a variety of platforms. Uh, we're still expanding that area to one of our three big five-year strategic goals. But um, no, no doubt, uh, 21 a little bit in the rearview mirror, but but it was a record year in every aspect for us.
2: You know what's dominating the conversation this morning? It's the price of credit. You've heard from all the banks, five, six, seven hikes, maybe 50 basis points in March. Jim, as you follow that conversation, what does it change for you, for the company, for the business, for what you do day to day?
3: Well, you know, for us, we play an expanding role in, in the credit markets. And whether, whether it's the platforms like a, an auto fleet finance business like uh, Wheels Dolan or an inventory finance of Elliott, which we did with BP. All of those, we are in touch with the end user, the end client, the end borrower. And the, 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 the marketplace is robust. Uh, the consumer's in relatively strong shape across the board. No doubt we're seeing wage and, and other inflation in the marketplace, but the, mar- the, the, the credit markets are not rolling over right now. We're still at historically very low rates. Defaults are expected to be quite low over the next six to 12 months. Certainly as you get into 23 and 24, that may be a different story. But we're relatively constructive on the underlying economy, which is what you really are investing in when you invest in credit.
0: Jim, you're such a student of Wall Street. I've got to go to the leverage question. Usually when things blow up for Wall Street, American Wall Street, and frankly, global Wall Street, it's this evil thing, leverage. What's the state of your Wall Street right now? Are they exposed with leverage to any interest rate dynamics that we could see? You know, from in, in my
3: three plus decades, I'm not seeing on the Wall Street participants of size areas where there's a complete lack of discipline. Um, and if there is aggressive lending, they distribute and syndicate in a manner. So I, I don't see any areas. Certainly, if you look at the leveraged loan market, the high yield market um, with equity valuations so strong, there are a number of participants that talk about you know, loan to value on enterprise values that are probably at the extreme level of of high. Um, And but certainly in in most of the things in in our business, what we do here at Apollo for our investors and for our institutions, we're a senior lender, top of the capital structure. Yeah, we it two or three times. But I'm not seeing the big pothole out there, i.e., housing or leveraged finance, which you saw in 0809.
0: Within this then is the wall of money that's out there. There was a terrific infrastructure announcement of a gajillion dollars made a few days ago. I can't remember the details, uh, Jim. It becomes a blur. But how do you adapt to the unlimited alternative investment wall of money that is out there?
3: Well, I think your your great question is you evolve. Uh, the reality is the world is short duration, and what I mean by that is long dated yield on pension assets. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of secular drivers to that the growing wealth uh, around Asia, the Middle East, Latin America. Uh, the pen- pensions are actually in good shape. The rally in the last two or three years have put many many pensions around the globe in better shape. And as they get to one hundred percent funded or closer to that, They want to lock in that, and they transfer their equity risk to more income, if you would. So there's no doubt um, if you look at how the role of of private credit and yield is now a permanent part of investor strategies, uh, your point is well taken that whether it's in Japan when rates are basically zero and Japan Post Bank has north of $2 of assets, they need these type of yield strategies. So what Apollo does well in, in terms of responding to that with our type of returns, uh, there is an insatiable appetite that exists out there. And all we're doing is we are really putting the capital from our investors at the intersection of borrowers who, who are in need solutions. So it's a, it's a trend, it's great. We're very fortunate coming into a business where every day the, the backdrop and the technicals and the tsunami actually get better quarter to quarter.
2: Jim, great to catch up, sir. Great quarter, too. Appreciate your time on this market as well. What a fun time for a lot of people. Jim Zelter of Apollo Global Management. With us now, we get lucky. Mark Cabana, the head of U.S. rate strategy at Bank of America Global Research. Mark, Ethan Harris for the economy team came out with the Fed rate call. Said seven hikes two weeks ago... It's non-consensus, it's consensus now, and that's changed quickly. Mark, you oversee the balance sheet side of the call as well. Put it all together for us. What's the team looking for now?
4: So uh, kudos to Ethan. He did have a great call on seven hikes for this year. The market's now pricing that. It seems like that's rapidly becoming consensus. Um, There are still questions about whether or not the Fed goes 50 in March. Um, We on the rate Strategy team have been recommending the client's position for 50. Um, We hit our target on that trade yesterday and certainly in the market's mind, it seems very likely that the Fed's going to go 50 in March and who knows, maybe even 50 in May as well Um, on the balance sheet. um, We've also been pretty aggressive on the timing of balance sheet reduction in QT. Uh, We believe that the balance sheet reduction will start in May and it'll go pretty aggressively. The Fed will likely have 100 billion caps. Um, redemption caps on treasuries and mortgages, 60 billion treasuries, 40 billion mortgages, and they'll phase into that over a three-month period. But while they're phasing into those caps, they're going to allow their bill holdings, of which they have about $325 to roll off immediately. So what this will mean is that the Fed can shrink their balance sheet by over $100 billion straight out of the gate with the bills coming off and those redemption caps gradually phasing in. And according to our numbers, we think that the Fed will see their balance sheet shrink by a trillion dollars in 2022. Again, that's a trillion (laughs) dollars in 2022 and another trillion in 2023. So the balance sheet reduction is likely to occur quite rapidly. So the Fed will be tightening not only through rate hikes and the front end of the curve, but they'll also be tightening by adding duration risk back into the market at the back end of the curve
2: with the balance sheet reduction. Mark, stop, stop, stop. Let me jump in. Seven hikes this year a trillion dollars of balance sheet reduction this year. I'm not here to say it's wrong. It's a call. I want to talk about the call. What on earth does the yield curve look like with all of that going on?
4: Flat. Maybe inverted by the end of this year. Um, uh, we we think that, look, the back end of the curve only has a limited capacity to rise in our view. We actually just revised our 10-year call at the end of the year from 2% to two 2.25, a, quarter, a minor, minor adjustment. But what we're thinking is that Look, the back end of the curve is going to have a hard time rising in the face of tightening financial conditions and presumably concerns about slowing economic growth. That's going to keep the back end anchored. Meanwhile, the Fed's going to be raising rates at the front end pretty aggressively. So we think you're going to be looking at a pancake flat curve, twos to thirties by the end of the year, with risks that it becomes inverted. And we don't think that the Fed is going to feel terribly bad about that because they have an inflation problem they need to tighten monetary policy pretty quickly, and they need to tighten beyond neutral in order to slow demand and get control of the inflation issue.
5: So, Mark, if you have an inverted curve forecast by the end of this year, are you calling for recession then in
4: 2023? So, we our forecasts are only for a flat curve. We're not at the inversion yet, um, and we're, we're not calling for a recession, but what we are calling for is a gradual slowdown in the economy. Over the remainder of this year and into next year. Um, an inverted curve doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be in a recession right away. Inverted curves do have a reasonable history of preceding recessions, but with long and variable lags. And I, we're not in the recession camp at this point. But what we are saying is that the Fed has to take policy into a place where it becomes tight. In order to deal with the inflation issue, they've got to slow aggregate demand in order to get a handle on inflation. And that means that the curve has to be flat or possibly inverted.
0: Mark, I don't want to front run you or Dr. Harris this morning on what Bank of America is going to suggest here. But within the talk of an emergency meeting and the fundamental idea that that threatens central bank credibility, if they have an emergency meeting to change your world, the balance sheet dynamic does that threaten Fed credibility? It's an original effort, an original action. does it actually threaten Fed credibility?
4: Some um, great question.
0: Um, there's a lot
4: of chatter in the market right now about an intermeeting move, especially following St. Louis Fed President Pollard's comments yesterday. We think that an intermeeting hike is quite unlikely. The Fed doesn't typically like to surprise the market when they hike um they will follow the market in the hiking path but they typically don't like the surprise and we think that it would it would be very unexpected to see the fed deliver an intermediate hike especially since they're just not there you had mary Daly uh on the wires yesterday uh from the uh san francisco fed saying that she thinks that a couple of hikes this year are appropriate she's not even sold on 50 never mind an intermediate hike and and, and, and tom i would encourage you and everyone who's listening to pay attention at 3 o'clock today. I know that sounds very specific, but it's really important because at 3 o'clock today, the New York Fed is scheduled to release its final purchase calendar. The final month of its paper is scheduled to be released at 3 o'clock today. And if the Fed releases that calendar at 3, that's pretty strong forward guidance that they're not going to be doing an intermediate hike. Um, so, again, we would fade the notion of an intermediate hike, especially if that calendar publishes as is scheduled.
2: Mark, is there a chance they don't publish that and just NQE right now? There is a chance of that,
4: but we don't believe that they're going to wait until 3 o'clock to surprise the market with that. We do believe that if they make the decision to end taper early, cold turkey now, yeah. they're probably going to tell us soon, like within the next couple of hours. Um, we'd be surprised if they wait until three o'clock to make that announcement. And again, honestly, Jonathan, I-, I just don't think that the Fed is ready yet to signal an intermediate hike. And that means that they're probably gonna publish the calendar at three o'clock. And for folks who want to play for this intermediate hike, and there's a lot of them in the market, just look at the February Fed Funds futures contract. It's showing rising odds of an intermediate hike. If you want to play for an intermediate hike, we think you're better positioned to play for a 75 basis point hike in March. Mm-hmm as opposed to an intermediate hike in February.
2: Dear me, Mark, I'm struggling to keep up, so let's go through it together. The idea of seven this year, the possibility of maybe 50 in March, you and Ethan seem to be still having a discussion about that. We'll see what the outcome is. Balance sheet reduction, one trillion this year, one trillion next year. Talk to me about destination. Can you put a number on that? Because all the calls we're seeing, some people going to five, some people joining you at seven, Goldman, one of them, they're not moving the terminal rate. They ultimately think that we end where they thought we were going to end three months ago. Mark, where do you think this ends? At what number?
4: So the B of A House call, Ethan's call, is that the terminal rate is between 275 and 3%. That's where he thinks the federal funds rate will end at the end of next year. So terminal is going to be above neutral, as we were discussing before, because the Fed has to tighten.
0: Mark, I want to go to the history of this in this incredible moment you just described on this Friday morning uh, in 2022. The late Alan Meltzer of Carnegie Mellon wrote an important essay four years before he died. This in 2013, where he was scathing, as you would expect from the conservative, over quantitative quicksand. The Fed's got to deal with a quantitative quicksand right now. Are you suggesting we could see action as early as this morning? TO DELAY OR DISMISS THE NEW YORK FED ACTION THIS AFTERNOON?
4: IT'S CERTAINLY BEING TALKED ABOUT IN THE MARKET. Um,
0: AND uh, THE CHATTER
4: AROUND THIS WAS VERY, VERY HIGH FROM OUR CLIENTS ON THE TRADING FLOOR AT Bay YESTERDAY. Um, THERE'S A BUZZ ABOUT THAT IN THE MARKET, REALLY FOLLOWING um, uh, ST. Louis FED PRESIDENT Pullard's COMMENTS YESTERDAY. BUT TO US, LOOK, THIS 3 O'CLOCK ANNOUNCEMENT IS A VERY STRONG SIGNAL. IT'S VERY STRONG FORWARD GUIDANCE. If it comes out as expected, um, then they're not going to go intermediate. But if it doesn't, then the odds of that intermediate potential hike are going to go up meaningfully. We think the intermediate hike is a fade. Um, and again, if you want a position for that, for a more aggressive Fed, we think you're better off paid March FOMC OIS and maybe driving the Fed to go 75 in their first hike.
2: Mark Cabana, just unreal. And I wish I could take this through the morning. Just fantastic. Mark Cabana there of Bank of America.
0: We're thrilled to bring you in studio for the first time since Nixon was president. Well, not that far back. <laughs> Tina Fordham joins us, head of global political strategy at uh, Avon. we thrilled that you could uh, be. with Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Such a pleasure to be back, Tom. These are delicate times in that Russia has conveyed a message. There is no plans. There's no this. There are talks to the north where we're comfortable with a map of Belarus of the northern, northeast of Kiev, I should say, and the southern parts of the Russian Federation. You have the courage to go the other way and look south to the naval reality of the Black Sea. Into this weekend, what do we need to know about Russia and Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia and the Black Sea?
5: Thanks, Tom. It's a very important conversation, and I've been talking to investors here in New York and also in London, where I'm based. And uh, you know, the, the memo is, um, is becoming more more clear on what might happen next. New military exercises have started. Uh, they're meant to last for ten days. Russia has been very careful to control the narrative and uh, always position its moves as uh, within its you know power. Uh, as a sovereign nation, the troops are stationed, of course, on the Russian side of the Ukrainian border and, uh, and in, in Belarus. But to block Ukraine's uh, Black Sea access uh, would be regarded as an act of war. And we had strong uh, comments from President Biden warning U.S. Mm-hmm. citizens to, to leave Ukraine. Um, the tensions are going to ratchet up over the next, you know, the remaining eight days of these so-called military exercises. There's
0: so many ways to go here, but in the limited time we have, and Gina Martin-Adams wants to get in as well, I would think of James Stravitas with his NATO experience, his Annapolis experience as well. Do we have the capability of showing the flag in the Black Sea in support of Ukraine?
5: That's one question. Another question is whether it be a good idea. And And, you know, in his Please. NATO capacity, Um, Of course, James wouldn't make these comments, but you're starting to hear more people articulating Putin's view, which is that NATO's eastward expansion is aggressive, that this is provocative. And what this is all about, really, what Putin's doing is testing the post-war settlement uh, uh, that says that um, uh, he he should be able to operate in his neighborhood. So Russia believes in sovereignty, except when it comes to, to Ukraine. Tina, the natural um, tendency of the market is to extrapolate any behavior and, and look for next steps. So my question for you is really, what would be next? Presuming we do ultimately get an invasion uh, of Ukraine, what will Russia do follow, to follow that up? Is that the end? Is, is Ukraine really the, the grand prize here? Or is there something bigger that we should be worried about? Well, I wouldn't be so so quick to assume that we are going to, to see an invasion of Ukraine, right? What what we can say is all the preparations are in place for a regional war. Um, in Ukraine, that's not the same thing as saying it's inevitable. So I do take issue somewhat with those suggesting that um, that this is mm-hmm. going to happen, and that's because I think that Putin has already managed to achieve quite a bit. Um, you know, we just talked about how he's he's got more <clears throat> mind share for the Russian position that it should be able to do what it wants in its neighbourhood uh, without interference, and these kinds of things. Uh, the idea that um, NATO should should be clearer about its position. Um, So de-escalation on Russia's terms uh, is not impossible, right?
0: Tina, I want to talk about what we talked to the wonderful Angela Stent. Of course, her book, Putin's World, is absolutely definitive. And she moved on, as you've moved on, to a larger global analysis. I'm going to go to Yalta. This was a few years ago. Again, on the bottom side of Ukraine. At the time, completely identified with Joseph Stalin, FDR, and Winston Churchill. And Professor Stent makes very clear that we're leading to some new structure of a tripolar world, of the United States of Putin and Russia and of uh, ascendant China as well. Explain the delicacies of the new Russia-China relationship.
5: Sure, well, uh, huge respect for, for Angela Stent, um, of course, and uh, I you know, I share that analysis. We've not been in a you know a, 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 the, the bipolar world for a long <clears throat> time. I'm not sure that I'm ready to think about a, a tripolar world. Russia is a spoiler. Right, it's, it has you know nuclear weapons capability. It has a UN Security Council seat, so it's a a powerful um, diminishing state. But really, it is a spoiler. It's a disruptor. Uh, China and mm-hmm. the, the U.S. the whole Thucydides trap that lots of people talk about sure. is another question. But what has changed since the statement at the Olympics is a more overt kind of um, cooperation between Russia and China, that's important, for example, for the future of the, of the monetary system, um, uh, creating parallel institutions. I mean, I, it's not right to focus merely on the military uh, manifestation mm-hmm. of this um, power relationship. China speaking up, yeah. sa- uh, saying that, um, that Russia should be allowed to do what it wants, of course, relates to Taiwan as well. Mm-hmm.
0: We were scheduled for a three-hour conversation, but I'm told we can't continue the conversation. Thank you so much for coming in. Please come again as well. We look forward on surveillance, of course, to seeing you in our London studio. Tina Fordham with Avon Hurst, and I really can't say enough about uh, the perspective she's given us over the last number of days. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening.